0: Welcome to the Optimal Living Dialogue series hosted by the Center for Optimal Living located in Midtown Manhattan. Join us as the founder and director Dr. Andrew Jatarski leads a series of one-on-one or panel discussions with some of the top thought leaders in today's harm reduction and mental health industries. Let's listen.
1: Uh, My name is Andrew Tatarski, and um, I'm looking at my good friend and colleague, Julie Holland. And I'm very excited uh, to welcome everyone to our first Optimal Living dialogue. And I thought that, um, you know, as the uh, director and founder of the Center for Optimal Living, uh, we've been thinking with our team and our colleagues and our community a lot about, you know, what, what goes into optimal living. And Julie Holland, Dr. Julie Holland, and I have a relationship that goes back 25 years. Um, Professionally and personally, we've crossed paths in a number of different ways and have had lots and lots of conversations about what goes into optimal living, what it is, and how we can help ourselves and others achieve it. So I thought, what a wonderful way to have a first optimal living dialogue, but to invite uh, Julie to join me. In talking about all sorts of things related to optimal living harm reduction uh, connection, which is, you know, the centerpiece of her new uh, book, which we will be talking about the role of psychedelics um, she's introduced in this book or wants to bring back also a consideration of the soul um, and you know, connection to oneself, connection to others, connection to the planet, connection to the cosmos, you know, transpersonal kinds of connections. And so we'll be talking about all of those things in a, in a freewheeling way. <laughs> um, so Julie and I um, will dialogue for the first part of this two hour uh, gathering and then we'll open it up to participants to uh, comment, to raise questions and to join us in the dialogue. Um, let me begin by saying a few things about Julie. Um, <laughs> Julie is a psychiatrist and a psychopharmacologist. And, uh, we met, as I said, about 25 years ago, over the course of those 25 years, I've marveled, uh, at Julie's output as an author, uh, as uh, a clinician, we've shared, um, cases and uh, she has brought you know, a tremendous value to much of the work that I do with our shared clients. She has emerged as a leading voice in the new psychedelic research renaissance, something that we'll also be talking about today. And um, in her writings, um, uh, she has really been for me in some ways a role model and her uh, courage to to take on cutting edge topics that were controversial and to kind of normalize them and introduce them to the broader community in a way that I think has made um, much of this material very accessible and very useful to people. She's also been really courageous in sharing her own personal process and uh, uh, some of her history that has really contributed to her passion for the work of helping others. And that's something that Julie and, and others uh, like Gaber Mate, who's another common shared colleague and friend, have done, which has inspired me uh, in my own process to be more open about my own personal, professional journey that's brought me to where I am. Um, Julie has written five books. Her first book was, I believe, Ecstasy, The Complete Guide and then she went on to uh, write about her experience in Weekends in Bellevue, uh, which uh, is a fascinating memoir. Uh, Then uh, she went on to do the pot book, and I was honored and excited to contribute a chapter on applying my work, Integrative Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, to a kind of personal self-guided process around uh, practicing harm reduction with cannabis. Um, then she did a book called Moody Bitches, which was maybe she'll talk about that as a controversial maybe. challenging title. yeah, really kind of challenged a lot of notions about why about women's feelings, women's emotionality, about why they feel what they feel, and why do we disparage women uh, for have, holding the feelings when in this time, certainly, we need women to bring the feelings into our politics, into our social interactions. And finally, this most recent book, I think is incredibly timely. Um, It is um, about the science of connection, Um, good chemistry, the science of connection from soul to psychedelics. And she really gets, sort of suggests that a central uh, uh, issue that we are struggling with that is contributing to suffering on the planet is alienation, disconnection, isolation, difficulties in connecting. Um, and she really kind of explores uh, a whole range of ways in which we can ultimately connect more deeply with ourselves, with our relationships, the people we care about, our communities, the world, and the cosmos. I would say that's quite an ambitious undertaking.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you start small, right? I mean, you just start with connecting with the self. Right. I mean, like you and I were joking before we started about, you know, having a few centering breaths or like, you know, noticing where your feet are. But the book does sort of start with, you know, make sure you're in your body and make sure you are connected to the present moment and that you're connected to yourself. And that's already a lot more connection than most of us do most of the days. You know, we're like off in thought or we're deep into our computers and we're not really in our bodies and we're not really connected to the present. Um, you did a really good job t- talking a lot about this, this idea of like connecting with the self, connecting with another person. Then um, I had a really big blind spot around family and connecting with family and, and what that meant. But it turns out there was a lot of science there. You know, the, the subtitle is the science of connection. And there's a lot of oxytocin when you start talking about nursing, you know, breastfeeding and, um, or childbirth or orgasm or skin to skin cuddling. That's all, those are all like really high oxytocin states. So there was a lot that I could write about with the science of connection. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I learned with good chemistry is that oxytocin, which is sort of, you know, everywhere everywhere I look, I was finding oxytocin. Everywhere I was looking for connection Mm -hmm. or openness or trusting or bonding, I was seeing oxytocin. Um, But the other amazing thing about oxytocin that we all need to remember uh, is that it enables neuroplasticity. So it, it helps our sort of our brain cells to make new connections or our brains to even make new brain cells. So neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, uh, synaptogenesis, which means like making new synapses, making new connections. This was something I got very interested in. Um, actually, my, when I was in high school, my mom went to grad school uh she kind of went back to school got another degree reinvented herself got a new job it was it was very inspirational to me that she did this but Mm -hmm. she came home one day from like some neuro class and she's like you know you're not going to believe this but like it turns out that the brain can like fix itself and regenerate itself and there's something called neuroplasticity so even if you have a stroke you can still learn to walk again and like i was really always interested in the brain and you know uh this it always sort of stayed in the back of my mind like this is a big deal neuroplasticity is a big deal so <clears> it turns out that a lot of the drugs uh that people take to have uh changes in their behavior like like say you go away for a weekend to have uh you know participate in an ayahuasca circle because you're hoping uh, maybe to make some changes in your relationship with drugs or alcohol or any other uh, behavior or substance uh, but sometimes what happens when you take ayahuasca, um, the DMT actually really is enabling tremendous neuroplasticity to happen. So, but mm-hmm. it turns out even hugging and being held or having good orgasmic sex, um, those things also enable neuroplasticity, and they and they enable us to grow and change. So, um, you know, the very end of Moody Bitches, uh, you know, the the subtitle for Moody Bitches is. The, the truth about the drugs you're taking, the sleep you're missing, the sex you're not having, and what's really making you crazy. Um, mm. And what's really making us crazy, what the end of the book was about, was all about how this, this connection is really what's driving the pathology. And the, the disconnection is what's causing the pain and the the isolation I mean, not only does it make us sad if we can't be with the group, but it's really terrifying on a very like uh, primal level, right? Because when we were um, cave people, if we got kicked out of the herd, you know, we were going to get picked off, or nobody was going to share the the kill with us, or nobody was going to help us build our shelter. So like. If your group didn't like you and you got ejected, you could die. So I think on a really uh, deep primal level, you know, we are all always sort of s- scanning for social cues to make sure that we're safe, socially safe. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why um, these Zoom meetings are so exhausting is because you're scanning, 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 and you can't really see people's expressions um, or, you know, it's it's. You know herky-jerky or their face gets frozen and like you know our brains want to analyze uh, in an analog way to look at social cues but uh digital social cues not great yes
1: can i jump in here this is one Please thing do. this is what i love about you in the span of <laughs> about a minute <laughs> you can like, touch on about 30 orgasm
2: neuroplasticity like, 30 zoom meetings major
1: <laughs> concepts and, and, and aspects of reality <laughs> uh, and how they all fit together and, you know, I need to kind of come down to basics and, and actually okay. what, I, what I wondered if, if we could dig into a little bit more, which is um, the disconnection, you know, as you've written about and you were just speaking to, we humans are wired to connect. Right. You know, we need to connect for a survival, right. um, not just uh, so that we don't get thrown out of the herd, but as you were just suggesting, you know, we need to connect physically, we need to connect and be close um, for our growth and our learning and our development, right? So why are we so disconnected? And now, uh, you know, we're talking about before the pandemic. Um,
2: right, right. I mean, because, that's what's you crazy. You know, Bruce right?
1: Alexander uh, did some really important research, which I know you're aware of, uh, where he suggests that social dislocation is one of the major contributors to uh, suffering of all kinds, you know, anxiety, depression, suicide, addiction. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, when we look at the scope of addiction and problematic substance use and its negative consequences, including overdose, I think we can make a case that this is one of the greatest humanitarian crises of our time. Um, right. And it's a reaction to this, this, this uh, essential disconnect. Uh, that totally. so many of us feel, and I just might add that during the pandemic, this has just been exacerbated. You know, totally, you know, yeah. So many reasons. So why? Why are we? So well,
2: different? I mean the the irony is, you know, good chemistry was written completely before COVID. It came out in June, but it was written absolutely entirely before COVID. And when I talk about epidemics in good chemistry, I'm talking about the epidemic of loneliness that we were having and the epidemic of isolation and also the epidemic of overdoses. And the fact that those things were going up and up and up was not coincidental. So um, not only does uh, social dislocation and social isolation feel terrible and make us feel unsafe um, and anxious and sad but also opiates mimic the sense of safety and Mm -hmm. opiates make us feel like we're being held and attended to so it's this sort of synthetic um, it's almost like synthetic social cues or you know the synthetic hugging you know and certainly people will describe their opiate experience as feeling warm and held and fuzzy and close or like someone is kissing me or someone is holding me like those are common ways that people can describe you know what they get out of opiates so um it's not a coincidence that the less we're being held and touched and the less we feel uh safe and belonging and connected um the more we're using opiates
1: as a society but i also add just to broaden that um that we know uh, those of us who work with people who struggle with drugs, those of us who have struggled with drugs and have friends and loved ones who struggle with drugs, know that it's not just opiates, but that many, many other drugs are really used by people to help them uh, feel more feel connected, connected to themselves right. and to others. So, Definitely. so, and it's not just opiates. It's, right. uh, it's cocaine and amphetamine and cannabis and uh, benzo. Right,
2: and then well, what I talk about in good chemistry is that cannabis and other psychedelics can help us feel connected to ourselves or help us feel connected to the planet. You know, if I go out in the woods or go out in nature and I've had some cannabis, I I absolutely pay a lot more attention to the nature around me. I feel more a part of it. I feel more soothed by it. So. Um, you know, cannabis allows me to sort of connect with, my, with myself in terms of my posture and how my, I'm holding my body. It helps me connect with nature and the natural world around me. And then there are things like psychedelics, I think, that either help us feel uh, connected to the universe or connected to the cosmos, or we have this sense that everything is connected, that it's all connected and it's all sort of a soup of energy or love and that, you know, we are in the soup and we are part of the connection. And that that feeling, you know, of oneness, I mean, I actually wanted to call the book one. Uh, mm. And uh, what was it? Um, uh, sorry, I forgot the subtitle. But uh, anyway, the, you know, the marketing department did not want a book called one or oneness because they thought it would be, you know, too tricky for the search engines. But it really is a book about oneness, about being feeling as one and whether that's uh, on your own or with a partner or in a family or on a team or in a band, you know, you and I both are musicians and I'm sure we, you know, I'm not the only one who's had this experience when like you're playing with three or four or five people and you're all like in the pocket and in the groove and you're looking around and like, you know, you've all kind of gone someplace together, you know, and that is a really unifying and I would venture high oxytocin state. So mm-hmm. yeah, I talk, I talk about how, uh, it, I mean, I, you know, I appreciate this, this, this example of, of endorphins and, and op- opiates and uh, feeling safe is a very particular type of connection. But yes, we, many of us use drugs to help us connect with ourselves or connect with nature or connect with the cosmos. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would say, though, that some of the things that we do are very disconnecting. Right. Mm -hmm. And like the more time, you know, I think a lot of us are using, uh, you know, social media or our or Netflix or Hulu or whatever. But we're on our screens. We're off in our own little world We're you know, we're deep in the laptop or on our phones. That's very disconnecting. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think with social media and things like that, we have this sort of synthetic. It's almost it's almost connecting. Right. If you're on Facebook or Twitter, you know, it's almost as good as if you were really in the crowd but it's not good enough and so you get this situation where you're scrolling and scrolling because you know this i think it's a gabor mate quote which is like you can never get enough of something that almost works Mm -hmm. you know you're like Mm -hmm. scratching around the itch so Mm -hmm. that's how that's how i think of of like twitter and and facebook and these things where you know and and instagram and tiktok you're just going 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 because you're not well first of all there's no end you know but you're not quite really getting whatever it is you thought you wanted or you came for and you just you know you kind of hope that volume will make up for quality you
1: know this this notion that disconnection is at the center of you know the suffering uh our suffering as individuals but also the suffering of the planet um is really a powerful so and I'm interesting and idea that is that um you know, we're having difficulty connecting with our loved ones, connecting with our families, but also uh, connecting with uh, people who differ from us politically. Right. <clears throat> uh, with countries that had, have different systems of government and living, yeah. we might think about this disconnection or the problems of connection as a, a kind of explanatory concept that um, really uh, addresses, you know, suffering on multiple levels. I, I mean, this is yeah. something we can only speculate about. But I'm I'm really curious about a few. questions right. About how did we well, get? Like, what are some of the fundamental challenges to connection um, that make it so difficult um, to connect on these multiple levels?
2: Well, I think some of it is just sort of like learned behavior. You know, that we're that we're taught that as humans, you know, somehow we're not we're not part of the natural kingdom. We're not part of the animal kingdom. We're like our own little special thing. You know. And mm. I think um, certainly from my psychedelic experiences, uh, I got very comfortable with this idea that we are all sort of interconnected and interdependent. Um, mm. And, you know, it's one organism, that the earth is one organism. Mm. Um, and But in, you know, in terms of the division of where we are now, you know, politically, like I, um, one of the chapters in Good Chemistry is about how we connect as a community and, you know, one of the sort of, uh, sort of darker seamy underbelly side of, of oxytocin is that it, it does uh, foster or enable this sort of us and them thinking like, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're on my team, you're in my tribe, Andrew, but that guy over there, he's not, you know, it's this like us versus them. And oxytocin helps with social cohesion. And part of social cohesion is, Uh, it's easier to have an us if there's a them, you know, and if there's a scapegoat, and if you can all agree on a few things, um, there's there's a, a stronger social cohesion. And You know, we know that that being in that kind of tight society, you know, whether it's a cult, or whether you're at a Grateful Dead show, or whether you're at a Trump rally, but you know, you, you're with your people. And it's like a heady experience. And you know, there's this very, uh, I would say that's a high oxytocin state also, you know, whether it's like you're at a concert, and everybody loves the song, you know, you're at a rave Mm -hmm. and the dance floor, you get this sort of group mind. you know, or you're at a political event and everyone's agreeing with you. So there is now for, I don't, I don't want to speculate why now more than ever, but of course there's a lot of social cohesion on both sides and people are pretty dug in.
1: And I wonder, I wonder if, um, you know, and as a, as a medical doctor, psychiatrist, brain person, what your thoughts are about this, but that these are almost two, uh, potentially opposing lines of development. That is, the, the, the search for oneness, the search for union, the search for, you know, communion, um, but that then there's this need uh, to cohere with a group uh, to protect against the other groups. Um, right. It's like these are two competing motives. Yeah. Um, well, you
2: can, you know, I... Uh there's something called vasopressin which is a bit different from oxytocin and that it's more about defending your turf and defending your progeny and men Mm -hmm. have more vasopressin and women have more oxytocin and oxytocin works better in an estrogen rich environment so it it may be you know i mean in in this in the community chapter what i end up talking a bit about is this idea of being open versus Mm -hmm. closed and this idea that um like for whatever reason uh I was brought up or I just am the kind of person that if I, if there's like a platter of food, I'm sort of counting how many people are here, how many pieces of chicken are here, how many, you know, what should I take? Is there enough for everybody? You know, but not everybody does that or thinks that way, you know, and there are some people who want everybody to have enough. And there are other people who are like, you know, screw you, I got mine, you go get yours, you know, and they, and it comes down to sort of like, uh, you know, socialism or a welfare state versus sort of capitalism. And, you know, you're on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about the the physiology of these two states, and and I sort of compare them to being in fight or flight versus the parasympathetic, you mm-hmm. know, because when you are afraid and defending and protecting, you're pretty closed down. You know, you're not really open to learning a lot of new things. You're not open to socializing. It's like, you know, the example I always give is like, if there's a fire in your kitchen, <clears throat> you don't pick up the phone to chat. You know, you're like, where's the fire extinguisher? I have to put this fire out. And mm-hmm. and my social skills are not gonna be so great while I'm doing this. Um, the opposite side of fight or flight, when we're in parasympathetic, mm-hmm. we're much more open to having new material presented to us, mm-hmm. being open to an integrating it, uh, open to make, you know, sharing, cooperating, collaborating. As opposed to um, things being very compartmentalized, and you know, um, you should be independent. You should pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You shouldn't need anybody.
1: You know, and and actually, there is a um, group psychology analogy to that that was first really put forward by Wilfred Bion, which is that um, he uh, studied groups and he found that when groups are um, feeling unsafe, they break down in various ways. Um, one of the ways that groups can become uh, in sort of cohering together as the group is what he calls a paranoid group, and that group comes together against the common enemy, right, right. to defend. Um, you know, the groups can break down also into um, subgroups that are all now fighting one another. Um, right. So, so it seems like the through line here is feeling unsafe, feeling threatened. You know, moving right. to fight flight and that, you know, we can move into fight flight as individuals or as groups. And what you're now bringing in is kind of the solution is how we can create safety. And actually, I just want to introduce, um, the idea of harm reduction and harm reduction philosophy practice as for me, really a a practice of setting up relationships that create safety, uh, based on collaboration, based on kind of empathy and compassion and curiosity and respect. Kind of setting up relationships with oneself and others
0: uh, yeah you
1: know based on these core harm reduction principles um and i know you've also talked about harm reduction for a long time that's been a part definitely
2: of yeah. yeah i mean <clears throat> i can i don't know if this is a word but i consider myself to be a harm reductionist, <laughs> harm reductionist. <laughs> um yeah. i don't know if it is or not um i definitely you know i i learned uh Well, I was going to say I learned it all from you. But the truth is that when I was an undergrad, I was learning about about harm reduction and supervised injection facilities and needle exchanges and things like that. This was uh, I I was an undergrad like 83 through 87. So it was really just it was just when when AIDS was starting to like be a thing and we didn't really know what was going on yet. Um, you know, I wrote a paper about how we should just be distributing clean needles to anybody who needs it and we should be giving condoms out willy-nilly and, you know, my professor was like, these are, you know, these are atrocious ideas that are so impractical and, you know, I I love how a lot of the things that I really thought were true um, in the mid-80s have finally sort of come to pass, um, you know, whether it's like MDMA for therapy um, or harm reduction, Um, but, you know, these are practical guidelines. Um, This idea of whether you're in fight or flight, am I all jerky or is it just me? (laughs) Am I coming through okay? Am I getting (laughs) jerky? You're
1: you're a little out of sync, but I'm not (laughs) not sure Mm -hmm. if that's you or or the technology.
2: I don't want to be out of sync. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, I'm just looking to see what's causing this, but I can't. Mm George, um.
0: If yes. You stop your video and then like restart it, it might sync you back up.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe. Shut down your video and then come back. Okay. Thank you.
2: We'll see. I don't think that's any better. Hmm. What a drag. All right. Well, I guess I'm just going to have to keep talking because I don't really have an alternative.
1: Well, what I was wondering is if you were on psychedelics, or actually, if I was on psychedelics. <laughs> Because you, you suddenly seemed very altered. <laughs> right.
2: I'm not, though. I'm really not. Um, this idea of of paying attention to whether we are in fight or flight or whether we are in parasympathetic is really important. And uh, my partner Jeremy and I, it's something we're really trying to notice in our communication with each other. Because as soon as you start having a little bit of a lapse a little bit of a louder voice and getting a little agitated and, you know, that means that you're either gonna run away or you're gonna attack, right? But in order to stay and have a dialogue, you can't run away or attack, you have to stay. And that's the first thing is just staying in the room, staying in the conversation, staying in the relationship, you know, assuming it's not physically abusive, um, that, that, you know, I think we all do a lot of escaping. I know I do a lot of escaping, you know, I mean, I am not a baker. I've been watching the stupid <laughs> great British Bake Off show. It's so escapist. I know it is escapist. Um, but, you know, fleeing sometimes is better than fighting. Um, but but in order to, to be a good dyad, you know, you have to be in parasympathetic. You have to be open and you have to be mm-hmm. uh, staying, being present, being connected.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's a wonderful concept, um, that I've learned, um, which is the zone of tolerance, of emotional tolerance. And as if we can imagine that we could, um, rate our emotional state from one to 10 between, let's say three and seven is a zone of affective intensity, emotional intensity, uh, in which we can tolerate, um, and think. And that when yeah. you get kicked over that, um, Uh, you know, our upper level of tolerance, we feel flooded, we feel overwhelmed, uh, we feel like we're falling apart, and we then tend to move into impulsive action of all kinds. That may be, you know, where the fight-flight reaction gets triggered, you know, and then there's impulsive flight, there's impulsive violence, there's impulsive drug use, um, you know, sort of this desperate sense of Needing to do anything to kind of discharge or to bring down the intensity of the feeling, um, so I agree, and I and this is something I know you you talk a lot about in your book, uh, all, many many different ways in which we can kind of notice when we're getting to that upper level and right. do things have practices to kind of bring ourselves back into that zone of tolerance, or I, I think that's what you might call para, right? yeah, so right.
2: It is, para. Um, You know, one of the easiest ways to put yourself into that zone Mm -hmm. is just breathing through your nose, just in and out through your nose is already more calming than involving your mouth at all. And then the super calming thing is to plug your right nostril and just breathe in and out through your left nostril. Um, And that's what I tell my patients to do when they're having panic attacks, actually, is to just breathe in and out through your left nostril. And it's a guaranteed way to sort of slow your breathing down and try to put you into para. But the other thing is, um, anytime your exhale is longer than your inhale, you're more likely to be in para. So, for instance, if I'm talking and talking and talking and talking, but like um, it's letting out the air very slowly, so I stay calm. But if I'm singing or if you chant, anything where you have these long exhales um, uh, is a way to keep you in para. And, but anyway, I mean, good chemistry is full of little tips. Uh, For ways to get in para, stay in para, and to most importantly is just notice when you're starting to get riled up and, you know, it's, you can feel the adrenaline or maybe you can feel the cortisol, but there's uh, as much as the sympathetic nervous system runs on adrenaline and cortisol, the parasympathetic runs on oxytocin. So anything you can do to increase oxytocin helps to put you into para, which Mm -hmm. is like if you can get somebody to hold you or or, uh, there's something you can do yourself called havening where you stroke your arms from shoulder to elbow and you can Mm -hmm. say things to yourself like I am safe, Um, I belong here, I am looked after, I am cared for, you know, um, it works.
1: it's why, silly
2: but it really why works.
1: Why is that not silly or hokey you know i'm good enough i'm smart enough and right gosh, right, people actually right. Like me. no but but so, and i think that there's something so important about about the things that we tell ourselves uh subliminally right? and 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 intentionally and we yeah. typically often tell ourselves things both subliminally and intentionally that can really make us feel bad uh, definitely
2: yeah but, i i, definitely, I a lot of time talking to my patients about sort of questioning their automatic beliefs, you know, and do you absolutely know that that's true? And can you imagine that the opposite is actually true? And I know these are sort of Byron Katie questions, you know, um, but, but, but her point is, uh, don't believe everything you think, <laughs> you know, not all of it is true, not all of it is good. And sometimes our thoughts will put us into sympathetic. Yeah. So mm-hmm. just, you know, paying attention to what when that happens, it's such an important first step.
1: Mm-hmm. So there are so many things, so many directions we could go in. I'd love to get back to talking more about why psychedelics and how did you get to psychedelics? But yeah. you know, I, I sort of am interested in maybe hearing you talk a little bit more about what is it about you that at you know an early age in <laughs> your career or even right. career, you were drawn yeah. to these kind of edgy, controversial, radical ideas like harm reduction, needle exchange. That was, yeah, what's was up with legal. that? I, I well, have to tell you, the syringe exchange didn't become legal until the late 80s. No,
2: right. It was like I learned about like what they were doing in Switzerland or how they were prescribing heroin in Switzerland. I was like, this is crazy, you know? Like, but I, um, I don't, you know, and there wasn't a lot of internet back then. So God knows, who, like, how I was learning these things. But, you know, when I, one of the first things I did when I moved to New York City was I did needle exchange walkabout, which is really bringing, bringing the needles to the people who needed them out down in the Lower East Side, but For I know people, I have to go You wait, want to go People who don't
1: know before. what that is. Why is it a good thing to give needles to people who are injecting drugs. I mean right. that um well, enabling or or supporting, I don't know. Well, all right, I mean, so,
2: you know, the the first the first thing you can think about is, all right, let's say you don't you don't care about people who are using drugs. It doesn't matter to you if they live or die, and obviously I have an issue with that. But let's say even that's your stance. I would still say from a public health point of view that the more clean needles are in the community, the less HIV and hepatitis the community will have. So just from a public health point of view, mm-hmm. you, want, you want clean needles. And then if you happen to care about people who are using drugs, because these are people who are in psychic pain and they have found some way to relieve their pain, um, then you want them to just uh, have clean needles so that they, they're not shooting bacteria into their veins so that they don't get bacteria stuck on the their heart valves, which is a huge problem when you inject drugs. Um, and also it's... And you know, I, I know I'm like preaching to the choir, explaining it to you, but like uh, if, I, if I am a psychiatrist and I go down the Lower East Side with some clean needles and I'm like, hey, who needs clean needles? That is somebody's opportunity to interface with a doctor who is not gonna judge them or demean them or belittle them. I'm gonna take, you know, I'm gonna meet them where they are with what they're doing and be like, hey, there's some, I, I get what you're doing, there's some ways you could do this that would be even safer and even healthier for you. And I wanna show you what they are. And then we would show them, you know, how to clean a needle with bleach or uh, we would give people bleach or Mm -hmm. we would give out condoms, willy nilly, anybody wanted them because because that will reduce the spread of HIV and hepatitis into the community. So Um, so
1: now there's a link between um, giving somebody a clean needle and the title of your book, The Science of Connection. Uh, Because, um, you know, I think it's important to consider that when we give somebody uh, something that can help them stay safe and healthy and alive, um, not only are we giving them, you know, a piece of information or a piece of equipment, but we're actually doing something symbolically that is so much more than that. We're saying, you know, you matter.
2: You're a person. You you matter. You belong. I
1: value you. I value your life. I believe in your future you know, and I will meet you on your own terms with dignity and respect.
3: Yeah.
2: And Um, I will care for you. Right. I will care for you because the thing that happens and, you know, you and I've, you've seen me get really upset talking to a crowd about this, but like I've seen the way that doctors and nurses treat people who are addicted to alcohol and other drugs. And it's not always pretty. And people get really treated like shit sometimes in the ER, um, just in the hospital. And I'm not saying all clinicians all the time, but some clinicians, some of the time, you know, you can kick a man when he's down, it's easy, you know, and sometimes you, we feel powerless and we want to have these little power trips so we feel better about ourselves. So the the unfortunate, you know, result of this kind of, these kind of needs um, is that people can really get sort of abused and and have very traumatic experiences in the healthcare delivery system. So this is another reason to do walkabouts and deliver clean needles is that people can actually have a positive experience with a member of the medical community, and maybe they're going to be more likely uh, either to seek help or maybe to get into treatment or just to feel like, you know, oh, somebody's looking after me. Uh, Somebody cares about me. Um, That makes me feel good you know, maybe I'll go do this other thing that makes me feel good that isn't shooting up.
1: You know, in, in I think now you're what you're talking about is you're bringing in trauma, and it's both, you know, trauma that may contribute to why people use substances in, in really problematic ways, or engage in other risky behaviors, right. but also the trauma that many people who use drugs have experienced at the hands of helpers. So right. that trauma based, you know, on top of trauma. And, and it's terrible. But actually this harm reduction framework that we're beginning to talk about um, offers people in what we in in sort of therapeutic language uh, talk, talk about as a corrective relational experience, a corrective emotional experience. That is right. something that can be an antidote to trauma, which is that yeah. we're, we're actually going to do the opposite of impinge, of demand, of require, of judge, of reject.
2: Um, Right. Because all those things put somebody in sympathetic, right? mm -hmm. That if you, you know, I get defensive, if you're judging me, um, if you know, I feel like you're rejecting me, you're not including me, you're not caring for me, you're not embracing me, I'm going to go into sympathetic, I'm going to attack you, or I'm going to run away. But where we want to be in the therapeutic relationship is that the person is open and empowered, because that's the only time learning and neuroplasticity, and behavior change are really going to happen. So, you know, you're already kind of behind the eight ball, when you go to seek help, you know, when you go to the ER, and you say, you know, I need help, or I want to detox or something. Mm -hmm. It's, it's hard to ask for help. You know, you're saying that you can't do it alone, or you're vulnerable, you're in a, you're in a subordinate position, you know, and Mm -hmm. it, of course, it is so traumatizing when you finally get to that place where you're asking for help, and you're being rejected, you know, and, and, just or, abused, treated treated badly.
1: Or I think often in a lot of traditional treatment, you're being offered something that you can't possibly accept. That is sort of jump this high. You know, we're willing to treat you if you do this, that, the other thing, and the other thing. Right. Maybe even we demand that you give up the substance, which before is life, we'll treat you. life-saving for right. you. Right. Or, or, you know, yeah treating the symptoms of trauma before we'll actually accept you into treatment, which is an offer that most people can't accept. Right, and
2: it's very, it's traditional in psychiatry, you know, if you go to a really traditional psychiatrist and you're using anything, they'll be like, look, once you stop using that thing, then I can prescribe for you. So that is saying like, you know, good luck, get help on your own. And when you're, when you figured it all out, come back and I'll treat you. You know, it's just, it's nonsensical.
1: And just to riff on this a little bit more, um, uh, one of the most bizarre things that has been accepted traditionally in treatment as the norm is um, if you are a person who uses drugs and you're in treatment because you use drugs voluntarily or involuntarily and you continue to use drugs while you're in treatment we will ask you to leave treatment right so that you're actually going to be punished for the very reason that you're in treatment
2: right exactly and,
1: and, and that's a norm that most people buy into both in addiction treatment traditionally right. and also in mental health care because mental health professions have been taught you got to get sober before you can get mental health care, uh, yeah. And so that setup leaves the majority of people who are using or struggling with drugs with no treatment. So right. the harm reduction framework really speaks to that. And and you as a psychiatrist, I think, are uh, kind of a leader. And I, I think in in what we might call harm reduction psychiatry, that is the complexities of being a person who may need to evaluate and prescribe medications for somebody who's using maybe illicit substances and has some knowledge about how to do that in a way that is gonna be uh, least harmful um, and isn't the kind of the collaborative relationship between the psychiatrist or the therapist or the helper and the patient. The, The bedrock creating safety makes it possible then to have these complex conversations about drug interactions, right. about, you know, how much are you taking and when does it become problematic and how might, you know, your illicit heroin interact with, you know, the your, protec-
2: prescription, Right, yeah. right. And, you know, I wish, I wish there were more data to pull from with f- drug interactions because it's a really problematic area. And the more that people are asking questions about microdosing or ayahuasca, but they're on psych meds, the more complicated these answers get. Um, but, you know, you mentioned something I kind of, it made me think about, about MDMA assisted psychotherapy, because, you know, one of the, one of the ways that I, um, I've heard MDMA described when somebody is, is having the psychotherapy is like an immense sense of safety, you know, that they felt uh, that they could talk about anything or they could explore anything and they felt strong enough to do that. And, and that, you know, MDMA helps to enhance like a therapeutic alliance between, the the clinician and the client. And um, me, you and I know that like the better the therapeutic alliance, the better the outcome, basically. You know, if somebody really trusts you and they're open to you and you you've got a good working relationship, that obviously will work out better than somebody who's very closed off to you and you know doesn't trust you. So so with MDMA, because of this enhanced oxytocin, which is one of the things that MDMA does. Um, there are very high levels of oxytocin when people take MDMA, and, and that sort of lends itself to this feeling of openness and feeling safe and feeling calm enough, you know, because oxytocin calms the amygdala, right? So it calms the fear response. So, you know, usually with psychotherapy, you start getting to something that's a little touchy and a little tender, and people you know, I don't want to talk about it or they just shut down or they're like, oh, look at the time, you know, our appointment's over. And by the way, I can't come next week or next month and I'll call you. And, you know, you lose people when you start getting into really tender areas or or when you start getting too close to the trauma. But but with MDMA assisted psychotherapy, you can really get right down to that trauma and it's, it's tender, but it's not impossible to really take it out and examine it and have a dialogue about it and try to figure out okay so you know what is this terrible thing that happened what was your response to the trauma you know what what sort of things did you start telling yourself about the trauma or about you you know all these things can be can be explored in a uh, where the client is very comfortable and and really competent to do some serious exploration
1: yeah so I wonder if we can kind of go into that in a bit more depth I mean I think most people who are thinking people today have heard something about this amazing renaissance of research with MDMA, with psilocybin, with LSD, even in some other substances that is close to um, getting FDA approval because the research is showing incredibly positive uh, outcomes um, with many different, uh, you know, syndromes, you know, problems of living, um, but. So I don't think we want to go into that, but but I think it would be neat to go into the process of how psychedelics kind of help the therapeutic process in more depth. And I, I think, you know, when, when you said, yeah, people can get all resistant in therapy, of course they can without a psychedelic. But I think good therapy can be very helpful, um, but it takes a long time to right. establish a therapeutic alliance. To really create a deep sense of safety, to right. help people cultivate the capacity to sit still and observe and open to deeper and deeper levels of themselves and their suffering. Yeah. And one of the ways I've thought about the value of psychedelic assisted therapy is that it can catapult therapy forward. Right. And, you know, that it's not that we do psychedelic assisted therapy and now we're done but it right. can really catapult and deepen ongoing therapies. And, what's, and, how, and I'd love to hear you talk about how that happens in addition to enhancing a therapeutic alliance. Yeah. Something it does inside the person. Um, um, but I'd also love to hear your thoughts about something I've been thinking about, which is um, that, that, that th- those data and those outcomes that we all know and see who are in this area are going to challenge our traditional notions of how people can change. And Definitely,
2: heal. yeah. And that's I mean, I, one of
1: the fascinating parts of the book. Um, I've started,
2: benefits. you know, there's a, there's a word get that, that gets thrown around every once in a while, which is like disruption or like disruptive technologies. And to me, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, uh, ayahuasca, ibogaine, like these are, and ketamine, these are potentially... Uh, disruptive technologies for the field of psychiatry, that we finally have some catalysts that yes, therapy takes forever, like really good therapy takes years and years. And I, you know, I, as you know, am not the most patient person. So mm-hmm. it's really appeals to my sense of efficiency that you can can, that the therapy can be more effective and more efficient and go deeper and um, you know, it's a catalyst to make it go, go deeper and faster and, and be sort of better. It's supercharged, the therapy. Um, and the, the pharmacology of how it does that, I think, is interesting because, uh, you know, I mean, and every, there are lots of different substances that can be used to catalyze psychotherapy. And, you know, we sh- I, I will make it clear that right now these are research uh, protocols protocols. Is, these are not legal medicines. Um, and in the within the research protocol, people are screened out if they have a history of psychosis or if they have a family history of psychosis. Um, if some people are on medicines, they have to come off the medicines. There's a lot of things that have to happen. And then there's all these preparatory sessions before the MDMA-assisted se- psychotherapy session. And then there's a lot of integration sessions after. So uh, this is not done willy-nilly. It's still a long process. But you're talking about maybe you know, three, four or five months of two or three sessions. Um, And by the end of this whole protocol, people aren't necessarily meeting criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. Like, they are significantly better. And um, MDMA is also being looked at for uh, for helping with anxiety, social anxiety, and autistic spectrum disorders, uh, looking at um, body image issues and anorexia nervosa, uh, uh, ben Sessa is doing work with uh, people with problematic relationships with alcohol. Uh, we're going to be seeing more sort mm-hmm. of indications, more, more patients who are being treated with MDMA. And um, for psilocybin, uh, they're looking at end-of-life anxiety mm-hmm. um, primarily, but also smoking cessation, uh, cocaine use cessation, so uh, an alcohol uh, cessation for people with alcoholism. So again, we're looking at um, these... Uh, catalysts of behavioral change, people Mm. who are ready to make Mm. changes, who want to make changes. And then because they are doing this deep sort of soul exploration, and because these are tremendous states of neuroplasticity, that Mm. real behavioral change can come out of these sessions. So Mm. these are breakthrough therapies. This is like a disruptive technology. It's very exciting. You know, uh, Mm. we, you know, we need new tools tools. You know, we desperately need new tools in psychiatry and in psychotherapy. And I'd say we've got a bunch of them. Now the question is, can we get them to people? Can we have equitable access, which is a whole other can of worms.
1: So I think I'd I'd like to say, uh, just to clarify, um, Julie, you are talking about research studies that many of them are in phase three. That is, that's the final phase before the FDA. There's enough data to support the efficacy of medications for the FDA to approve them. So none of these therapies in the United States are approved therapies. So I think it's important for folks that are listening who don't know uh, to hear that we are not recommending that people run out and get psychedelic assisted therapy. It's not available in the United States. There is a lot of uh, work being done where it is available out of the United States. there are underground circles where work is being done. And we are not in a position to, to recommend uh, or judge you know, the efficacy of those treatments or those ceremonial circles. Um, you know, That's kind of outside the purview of licensed professionals. Um, we do, I think, want to honor that there is a very long tradition of indigenous traditional use of these sacred medicines yes. that we might say is you know hundreds, if not millennia, um, uh, years of evidence that that these medicines are efficacious, but from a, a American kind of medical or you know psychological standpoint, you know these we still need more proof to make these substances available, but right, but right. I think you know it was you you were more courageous or out there before me uh, with your book on MDMA I think back in two thousand ten. Where, so you were
2: 2001, you know what,
1: okay. The, um, okay.
2: the ecstasy book, funny little story about the ecstasy book. Uh, we started a whole PR campaign and we sent out faxes because that tells you how what year it was. Mm-hmm. We sent out like hundreds of faxes. Uh, Monday night, September 10th, 2001. So Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001. Uh, I don't think anyone really saw their faxes or responded to, you know, I was sort mm-hmm. of. I mean, it's a terrible joke, but I but I did make this joke with Jeremy at the time that 9/11 was starting to unfold. I looked at him and I said, "I was hoping for a slow news week, actually, this week because <laughs> so I just had a book come out." Um, but yeah, I was a little bit early on the MDMA bagwood. I mean, as soon as I I experienced MDMA for myself in 1985, shortly before it was made illegal, and um, I became convinced that this was absolutely. Uh, the first real intuition I had was, oh, this could be really helpful for people with schizophrenia Um, because my head felt very quiet. And Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, if somebody's hearing voices or having a lot of interior monologue and you know, that voice could quiet down, wouldn't that be nice Mm -hmm. for them to have like sort of a respite from their hallucinations. Mm -hmm. So, and that is some research that that I still uh, would very much like to be involved with down the line. But the first, the first Mm -hmm. order of business is are these phase three studies with, post-traumatic stress disorder, where the data is really strong.
1: I'd like to say that um, I also was introduced to MDMA in 1985 personally before it was scheduled. Um, And so had a very early, very personally meaningful set of experiences that um, were related to kind of beginning to really process some of my own early trauma. So that was an early imprint for me yeah. Uh, and so I've been, for many, many years, kind of a quiet supporter and observer on the fringe. And I think because my work uh, in harm reduction since 1994 explicitly, um, I felt at that time was so controversial and um, that to kind of come out in support of psychedelics would have potentially thrown a monkey wrench into the work. but. I yeah. think about five years ago, with the accumulation of, of evidence from these research studies, I finally came to feel uh, brave enough or that, you know, the evidence really is strong enough that ethical professionals and ethical people should come out in support of getting this research done uh, to really see if, you know, these medicines can get widely out there to help many, many people. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I know that um, both of us uh, have have trauma in our histories that um, you talked about in this book. Um, I only began to talk about personally about four years ago in an interview uh, about my own personal trauma history. But you, uh, sort are of you are off. you
2: comfortable? Are you comfortable, Andrew, talking about any anything about your own trauma history?
1: Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm get, I'm getting more and more comfortable every time I talk about it it kind yeah. of kind of processes the trauma right. well you should try is.
2: try doing this while you process you'll feel even better
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. um but you talked about um being a teenager and having some very yeah. difficult experiences that i think you link you you point to as one of the core motivations for doing the work that you do
2: yeah it's funny because um i was sort of plotting out uh I was thinking about writing another memoir um, and I started plotting out all these really great stories and crazy things that happened to me in my life. But I saw that there was a pretty clear, you know, I was, I, from a very young age, I was extremely interested in like, what does this do? What does that do? I was like doing little experiments, writing things down, you know, like drink a beer. What does that feel? Have a cigarette. What does that feel like? you know, smoke this joint. What does that feel like? Like, you know, even the first time I took MDMA, I was like taking notes of like, you know, what time I took it and how many milligrams, like, you know, there's just like a research component in me, no matter what. But anyway, when I sort of plotted the trajectory of what happened in my life, I realized that this, this sort of social ostracism thing that happened to me when I was in eighth grade, um, which was very painful at the time, you know, I was in the in crowd, and then I wasn't in the in crowd. And it was, it was just a nightmare and it was very public and they were calling me names in the hallway and thank God we didn't have the internet or I would have been like bullied online or something. But, um, mm. you know, after getting expelled from the in crowd and having this horrible social experience, I, my next school year, I kind of hung out with the druggies, you know, I hung out with the drug using people. And like, that was a crowd that I had no trouble getting into. I definitely belonged there. Mm. Um, And, you know, I felt like I just couldn't be in the in crowd anymore. You know, it was just too, I mean, some of those kids went from eighth grade onto the high school where I was. So it just really wasn't an option. So um, in freshman year of high school, I tried a lot of drugs. I did a lot of experimenting. um, And I had a really fun, great group of friends to do it. Um, But also, you know, I was very smart. I did really well in school. And so, you know, I was able to sort of uh, over time, expand my friend group. And, you know, I started being friends with all smart, smart kids and I was, I played trumpet and I sang, so I was in the band and the chorus, stuff like that. It all it all worked out okay for me, but eighth, eighth grade was really, really hard for me. Um, but it got me now understanding how ostracism really is like a life or death experience. Um, and that it, it's a very primal need to make sure that you, uh, that, you know, the group likes you and you're going to stay in the group. And I, you know, I mean, eighth grade is sort of like a shorthand now. Like if Jeremy and I are in a group situation and, you know, he'll be like, oh, you got an eighth grade thing going on. You know, like it's great to have a sort of shorthand for trauma because it just makes it so much easier to contain, you know?
1: So isn't it quite wonderful that, you know, your own experience of being socially dislocated, of being isolated and rejected from the group, actually, well, and... Discovering a group that was using drugs uh, was a group that you c- could connect with, and yes. I don't know, but I wonder if the drugs actually helped uh, this group of people who maybe like you had suffered different kinds of very difficult experiences. That the drugs kind of helped with the connection and the bonding.
3: It's but that, that
1: then now, um, how many years later, you know, you've become very yeah. interested in the science of connection um, yeah. and how we can help people you know, overcome those experiences like what you experienced um, to connect, you know, on on these. Yeah,
2: you know, it's funny because I'm thinking about drug users connecting. And one, I remember, you know, when COVID came around and uh, I wrote a couple of pieces and did some interviews where I talked about like, look, I get that we all love to share joints and share vapes and share bongs, you know, um, but we can't right now, you know, and like everybody, you just have to like, Uh, This is harm reduction, right? You know, you need to get a one hitter or or something uh, because, you know, this is potentially really uh, life threatening for us to do that. But Mm -hmm. it really, it sort of reminded me about how, and I had this too, when I was a cigarette smoker too. Like if you're a cigarette smoker, you know, you go outside some building and there's some other cigarette smoker because they have to be outside too. And you smoke and you talk about whatever, but like, you know, you already have that thing in common and you can, so you can chat. You know, and it was sort of like that with the drug using people like, you know, we all had this thing in common that we'd like to, you know, drink beer or smoke cigarettes or smoke pot. So we'd hang out and that's what we would do. Um, So you know, I still sort of feel that kind of camaraderie, I guess, you know, with my with my patients that I'm trying to help or with the patients at Bellevue. I mean, you know, I lasted at Bellevue a good long time and there were two reasons for that. one was that I only worked Saturday night and Sunday night at the psych ER and I had all week off to recover and, you know, forget. I mean, it was like childbirth, you know, you forget the pain, you're willing to do it again.
4: Mm-hmm. Um, and
2: by Saturday you know, afternoon, I was ready to you know put my scrubs on and go back to work. But the other thing that kept me going was that I really liked the patients that I was dealing with, you know, and I was perfectly happy uh, to talk to people who were having problematic relationships with alcohol and other drugs or Uh, you know, who were really in a bad place. And like, uh, you know, I could sort of turn the empathy on and off as much as, you know, need be to connect with somebody and get some information and figure out how to help them. But then I had to kind of turn it off because, you know, if I would just bleed out, if I like empathically connected with everybody at Bellevue on every shift, you know, it was a lot. Mm
3: -hmm. I had to
2: turn the EQ down a little bit so that I didn't get, you know, I couldn't feel everybody's pain so much. But the other thing that was great about Bellevue is that, if, I, if somebody came in who was very altered, and not always from psychedelics, you know, people can get very altered from their own chemistry, um, and I would see pretty extreme cases of this at Bellevue where people were, you know, in a manic episode or in, in a psychotic episode of some sort, but they sometimes really reminded me of my tripping friends from high school you know, mm-hmm. the same sort of like wide, wide-eyed wonder and sometimes even dilated pupils, mm-hmm. you know, they look like they're tripping. They would talk about really interesting, you know, that thing you think is the sun up in the sky, like I think it's the eyepiece of the microscope, you know, and I'd be like, that's cool. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it just reminded me of, you know, these sort of high school conversations I would have with people who are tripping, for instance. Um, but I was, though, me having those experiences really made me a better doctor because I knew what it was like to feel paranoid. I, you know, I knew what it was like to feel like things are all like, it's all a secret language I need to interpret. Um, And, uh, and I knew what it was like to think that everything is connected and everything makes sense and like what that sort of epiphany feels like. So I think that I just had a little edge, you know, on sort of validating people's experiences or empathizing with people because like, oh, I've been there, brother, You know, I know what you're talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and mm-hmm. I loved it. I love that job. I will never have a job as much as I love that Bellevue job.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Even working alongside you down the hall in yeah. our little office on 11th street, as good as it was, was not quite as fabulous as my Bellevue time was.
1: Right. You're referring to um, a suite of offices that I had uh, at 31 West 11th Street. Yes. Uh, between Fifth and Sixth Avenue, with a bunch of colleagues, and you had an office down the hall. And that was my we, very first office. And we bumped into each other, and yeah. uh, realized hmm, lots of common interests. Definitely. Um, yeah. So you shared your trauma. I'll talk a little bit about my. All more. right, I uh, would like that. So. You know, there are sort of two parts to my story about how I came to harm reduction. The first part was what I believed initially. You know, I had seen a number of people struggling with drugs through my clinical training in my internship, uh, just by coincidence, and I and I sort of came to feel that this was a kind of under-treated, poorly treated, mistreated group of people, and. Uh, When I finished my clinical training, I saw this tiny little ad for uh, um, a job as a counselor in a drug treatment program up in East Harlem. And Mm. I was drawn to it, and I only really later came to understand more fully why. But I went for the job interview, they hired me, and I began my career in traditional drug treatment. And I worked for the first eight years of my career in abstinence-only disease model treatment Um, And I ran an intensive outpatient program. I mean, we were in the 80s sort of trying to do something progressive and integrative and cutting edge, but we were really hamstrung by this disease model, abstinence only approach to addiction. And over the course of those eight years, I began to see that actually we weren't helping most of the people that were coming to our programs. And in fact, i found myself having to do things, uh, like I alluded to before, that ultimately were traumatic for the patients, and I think traumatic for and me. And for you. I had to yeah. kick people out of treatment because they kept coming back with positive urine toxes for cocaine. Right. And while, it, as a clinician or a human being, it made no sense. You know, that was the ethos. That's the rule. It's yeah. the rule. That's how we do it. So an accumulation of those experiences ultimately led me to become more and more disgusted and confused and conflicted and. In the late '80s, I opened a small private practice, um, probably that one on uh, on 11 in that office suite on 11th Street, and I figured the, the traditional approaches in helping most people. Let me break the rules and work with active drug users. People were referring people that were actively using, so I figured I'd accept them and see what happened. And lo and behold, many of them did incredibly well. They engaged in therapy. They cut back their substance use. Some stopped. They worked on other issues. So now I was in this total kind of philosophical, professional quandary. In 1994, I had a relationship with Alan Marlatt, who is an addiction psychologist, pioneer researcher, one of the people that brought harm reduction to the United States from Europe. I told him my quandary uh, one afternoon, and he said, Andrew, you're doing harm reduction. So for me, the introduction to the harm reduction model was like, you know, a parad- my paradigm shifting moment. I sort of saw there's a whole new way that we could think about setting up helping relationships. And that kind of set me on my journey of developing integrative harm reduction psychotherapy. But about 10 years into that journey, in my own personal therapy, I stumbled on an experience I had when I was 15 years old in a drug treatment program, I was in a non residential therapeutic community and I was in it because I had been smoking pot and taking psychedelics and I had a series of terrible, terrible trips. You know, they say that there's no such thing as a bad trip, only difficult ones. Right. I had some bad trips um, and I agreed to go into this program because I thought this after a, a series of them, it probably would be a good idea for me to get away from this. And initially, this therapeutic community was a a wonderful, kind of caring, loving place that gave me structure and like a family. And then I broke a rule about uh, nine months into it. And if you know anything about, you know, humiliating, attacking, breaking down. Well, that's the therapeutic therapeutic community,
2: community, right? That's what they do. In
1: 1970, I got the brunt of this. I had to wear a sign, I'd lost my privileges, I right. was stunned, I was put in the middle of rooms and yelled at, and uh, I mean, the most disgusting, you know. And I was shell-shocked. I mean, and uh, I began to sort of gather myself and find my voice and, and, you know, try to express myself. And they upped the ante, they brought more people in to pound me down. So at 10 months, I said, fuck you, you know, I don't have to be <laughs> here, I'm right. at home. So I split, but when you're a split T from a program like that, you like your persona non grata.
2: Right. I lost
1: my, my start all over. You have
2: no support,
1: had nothing. Yeah. I started a new high school, actually the high school of music and art. And I couldn't concentrate for the first time in my life. I'd been a good student. I wound up dropping out of high school and there, you know, I kind of like left the thing behind, uh, just completely dissociated the experience. But then I began to have panic attacks, particularly when I was in front of a group.
2: Hmm. Surprise.
1: <laughs> um, but what I later came to understand is that that trauma actually brought me into the drug treatment world. Totally. It sensitized me to what was wrong with it. That right. Is basically what had happened to me. And it kind of inspired my passion to create this harm reduction, compassionate, uh, respectful alternative. Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of a story kind of like yours about how we can turn trauma into kind of constructive, creative action for change.
2: You know, Jeremy has this great way of looking at it as like, you know, the things that scar you when you're younger, those are your strongest spots now, you know, and that, so that is where you can do, you can actually do your work. So like, you know, the places where we got hurt can end up being, you know, the places where we can help the most people.
1: Um because, yeah you know what, because
2: you have that compassion.
1: Yeah, but what's also fascinating to me is that it was psychedelics that got me into that drug treatment program <laughs> if I had had a good psychedelic integration therapist. Right, you it would have helped me recognize that that the quote bad trips were experiences that put me into earlier trauma that right. I was in no way in a state or in a place where I could could contain it and process it. You didn't
2: know. I mean, you know, it wasn't sort of common knowledge back then, I feel like, that if you trip, traumatic things might come up that you need to process. You know, there was a lot of psychedelics around 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, we were sort of swimming in it, and I don't remember anybody sort of warning me, um, you know, you may remember terrible things that happened to you when you were three years old if you take this. So, so It'd then nice. the
1: full circle is that being reintroduced to psychedelics in 1985, in this circle that was doing MDMA in a kind of an intentional way, actually yeah. began a deeper kind of process of kind of addressing and healing these traumas. So, um...
2: Yeah. Uh, it's funny, it's funny that, uh, 85 was sort of the year for both of us. Like, we got in under the wires. like, before it was made illegal, um, uh, full disclosure, though, I actually took MDMA a few times when it, after it had been made illegal. Um, so,
1: so, you yeah. are, you are uh, another <laughs> way in which you are a courageous one is that, and I, I, I need to call out our good friend Carl Hart, who's also just written a book uh, in which he's coming out as a drug user. Yes. But um, in this right. conversation, and I think in many of your conversations and in your books. You, you're you out as a current drug user, not just a former drug user.
2: A bit, that, yeah. Uh,
1: that's a daring uh, position to well, take as a professional.
2: You know, I'd started, like, to, like
1: to hear what you have to say about that.
2: Well, I think, you know, when I when I edited the MDMA book, I didn't really write about my own experiences, I don't think. It's funny, I don't remember. But um, when I wrote Weekends at Bellevue, that was when I, I outed myself as a pot smoker. I mean, the night I met Jeremy was at a party. It was a party for Terrence McKenna. Uh, we we're smoking some of the strongest pot I've still ever had in my life because that that was Terrence. Um, but I talked about you know sharing a joint with Terrence and then you know chatting this guy at the party and meeting Jeremy. So I sort of outed myself as a pot smoker I think in in weekends at Bellevue. But in I don't know what I did in Moody Bitches and I might not have done anything. But in Good Chemistry, you know I would I I would use phraseology like you know those of us who have experienced a mystical mystical experience or, um, you know, uh, I would use the we or the third person plural a lot to sort of include mm-hmm. other people, uh, you know, I've had these experiences, maybe you have too. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I sort of speak about or, you know, if I get invited to speak somewhere, I will often bring up this idea of outing ourselves and that, mm-hmm. you know, and I, it's like, it's a lot like Harvey Milk with gay rights, you know, Harvey Milk said, if you want gay rights, you have to stand up and say, I'm gay and I want my rights you know? And I think it's the same thing, you know, with, with drug users, those of us who can out ourselves, who can say, you know, I've had positive experiences from psychedelics. They have helped me grow and change. They have helped me abandon unhealthy behaviors and, and, you know, help me end problematic relationship with substances and things like that. Like anybody I think who has had uh, experiences with psychedelics, who is in a position to admit it or tell other people about it, that, that would help us. It's, I mean, it's the same thing with like, you know, cannabis users, like the more, the more it is normalized and destigmatized, the less of a big deal it is, and the less any of us have to go to prison for it. So.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you thing. said those of us who can, because right. I think, you know, what you're Not thinking, all of us can. can. There are certainly many people who, for a whole variety of reasons, their jobs, their families, out of respect, and sure. I want to make a comment about that, that we were talking about before. Um, I haven't outed myself uh, as a drug user, um, or as a non-drug user. I actually take a position uh, personally, professionally, that um, it would be a kind of disservice to my clients, to my patients, uh, to my colleagues, um, to come out in one way or the other. Um, If I were to say to my patients that I'm sober in AA for 25 years, I think for some people that would be inspiring and that would be uh, great role modeling. For others, it would be intimidating and it would um, bring up such uh, uh, frightening uh, presumptions about me judging them if they're not going right. to get somewhere. Or on the contrary, if I were to say, you know, I'm a casual drug user. I sometimes smoke crack and sometimes inject speed, and but I've got it under control. Um, I mean, that you know, w- where, how is that going to be helpful? on either end to some people. Um, But having said that, I think I want to make a more radical statement, which is that I actually think we're all drug users. And that, you know, and that that's where I come out as a proud drug user. We're all drug users, you know, that we've got this um, really, really sick, uh, dangerous, destructive distinction between the good drugs, you know, that basically that are, uh, you know, white male, Uh, patriarchy has determined, you know, uh, we can sell. And then the bad drugs that we are identifying with, you know, marginalized communities or people of color or that we criminalize as a pretext for arresting people and, uh, you know, destroying communities is just a a travesty. And um, that we need to come out uh, as drug users across the board, Um, you know, why are certain legal drugs any more harmful or less harmful than certain illegal drugs? Right. Uh, So, and and I I told you before, uh, the Urban Survivors Union, which is a union of proud drug users, former and current people that are out as drug users, had this one, made this wonderful T-shirt that um, says, you know, what kind of drug user are you? And then there's a picture of a syringe of a crack pipe, of a, of an alcohol bottle, a coffee cup, and a Pac-Man, you know, Ms. Pac-Man. Right. And then it says, I'm a proud drug user. And I, I took a photo of myself with that shirt, and I shared it on social media, and I got more likes than uh, any other post ever in history.
2: (laughs) Well, it's great. I mean, it's very validating.
1: You know, it's time for us to return these demonizing, stigmatizing, criminalizing, narratives, you know, pathologizing narratives about people who use drugs. uh, Because, uh, well, it's just, it it should be criminal uh, and genocidal.
2: Um, You know, one of the things I think that's happening now with COVID and the pandemic and the isolation is that a lot of us are noticing uh, that we feel pretty terrible and we need soothing. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we're alone, if you're living alone, you know, you can't ask somebody to hold you to, you know, make you feel better. And like, we have to soothe ourselves on our own. And like, a lot of us will soothe ourselves orally. I mean, that's just how, you know, babies, they're given like a pacifier or a bottle, or if they're lucky, they to get a nipple and a breast and they're being held. But like, it's still that this, you know, oral soothing is a very basic way. So, you know, like the the COVID-19, you know, there's people who've like gained 20 pounds in the last six months. There's a lot of us out there. Or, you know, the, the quarantine is taking on a life of its own, or these sort of things. Like, um, right now, uh, we are seeing an uptick in people feeling agitated, feeling traumatized, scared, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the country? I mean, as much as maybe you're worried about fear of contagion, I would say that more of my patients are really worried about like the downfall of our democracy. You know, like there's, there's a lot of things to be afraid of. There's a lot of self-soothing going on. And I just think it's important for us to, um, you know, have some sympathy for the way each of us are choosing to soothe ourselves. I mean, I really go off quite a bit in good chemistry about process addictions, behavioral addictions, that we really are addicted to our phones. Um, That many of us cannot go more than a few minutes without just checking, see if I have a text, see if I have an email, see what's on Twitter, you know, that um, that is a form of addiction. And, you know, maybe it's socially acceptable, but I still think that, uh, you know, it's like a digital addiction or something synthetic, like, I think we should still be aware uh, when we're doing it. Um, you know, a lot of us make choices every day about drugs that we just don't think about. Like in the morning I get up and I'm like, should I have a, a coffee or a tea or a decaf coffee or a decaf tea? And I know how much caffeine sort of is in each of them. What do I have to do today? You know, oh, I need coffee. Oh, I'll have a decaf tea and see, you know, maybe I won't get one of those horrible caffeine withdrawal headaches at three o'clock. But, I mean, that is about a taking a drug, choosing to take a drug, uh, staving off a possible like physiological withdrawal, you know, from if you have a coffee every single morning, and then you don't have one, you're going to get a terrible headache at three in the afternoon. And that is because you are physiologically, you know, addicted or adapted to this stimulant. So yes, coffee is readily available, and it's cheap, and everyone's allowed to drink all the coffee and tea they want. So it's not so much of an issue.
1: Can I, I'd like to make one more, um, I think, Radical statement or suggestion that maybe okay. we can think about together. And then I'd like to kind of include our participants there. Love they're, to do QA. Great comments. Yes. But, you know, I, I think that, that one of the things that I've really come to believe strongly is that this change in practice from punitive to harm reduction, from punitive to collaborative and respectful, yeah. um, is really being supported by a change in the way that we think about drug use and about addiction. And one of the ideas that I've come to more recently is that what we call addiction, which is an experience, experience of of craving, of loss of control, of obsession, of doing something uh, desperately when another part of us doesn't want to, which is more of an experience of a dilemma, is actually um, on a continuum with universal human experience. So that even this concept that there are the addicted ones and the rest of us um, needs to be, uh, what was that word that you used? Disrupted?
2: Disentangled? Disrupted?
1: Disentangled. Um, You know, it's a way of maybe distancing uh, ourselves from those parts of us that are expressed in more extreme ways by some members of uh, the society and probably members that are suffering more than us uh, and they're more desperate. So I think that I've been thinking about this as the need to kind of rehumanize the way that we think about addiction. Um, so maybe you have a comment about that. Uh, well, about I mean, the, just, it just happy. makes
2: me, yeah. it just kind of reminds me of Gabor Mate again and the thing he says where he says like, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain, you know? That we all, we all have pain, we all respond to this pain in a different way, we all try to soothe ourselves in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, how we soothe ourselves isn't really as important as, why do you need soothing? What's going on, you know? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I would love to do Q and A if there's any good questions out there.
1: Well, so we'd love to hear questions. Um, let's see, there's one by Michelle Weiner. How about the connection between exercise and parasympathetic or perhaps flow? Or enjoying the exercise you do when you're exercising.
2: Well, I have a lot to say about exercise and flow. I will. I will definitely try to keep it brief. The first thing I will say is that I talk about flow and exercise in good chemistry for sure. Um, and you know, most exercises I think will put you in flow, and most exercise uh, absolutely enables neuroplasticity. So it helps with these, you know, new brain cells, new connections, new new circuits, new behavior. Right. So even something as simple as just doing regular cardio can help to make you more neuroplastic, more sort of flexible, less cognitively rigid. Um, This issue of flow is sort of a a secondary thing. And what flow is, um, is that you lose yourself in the doing of something, right? So you Mm -hmm. can be in flow when you're exercising or when you're meditating, or you know sometimes if I'm like cooking and chopping and in the kitchen, like I sort of forget myself, I get so absorbed in what I'm doing I stop really thinking about other things. So yeah. that state of flow is definitely a parasympathetic state, um, mm. and like awe, right? Awe when you when you are in awe of something bigger than you, and you feel small because you're you're next to something that's big. That is also similar to a flow state where it's a very opened state. So yes, you're in parasympathetic, but more than that. You are primed for learning you are open and primed to receiving new information
0: Mm. so
2: when you are in parasympathetic when you are in flow when you are in awe especially it's like an uh optimally open state where you're really primed for learning Mm
4: -hmm.
2: oh but uh my patients who are kind of anxious and agitated and freaked out about the world sometimes Mm -hmm. i really recommend that they do things like yoga instead mm-hmm. of running you know it's like if you're running if you're sort of psychically running on empty and you're adrenalized and you're in fight or flight already then maybe it's better if the exercise you do isn't so you know it doesn't sort of simulate you being chased by a tiger
1: mm-hmm. so we'd like to welcome everyone in the group uh, and if you'd like to turn on your videos we'd love to see your faces and i have to say that I'm already seeing the faces of some very special people uh, in our lives, Um, so uh, welcome to the conversation. Uh, We'd love to hear comments, questions, um, and, you know, if you have a brief question or a very important question, but try to keep it brief for time's sake, we'd love to turn, you know, turn on your mic and hear from you. Does anyone... um,
2: I, you know what I want to, I would like to uh, answer, um, Charlie, Charlie's question.
1: Charlie, Charlie Whittinger who just came out with his own book. Charlie's got,
2: a, <laughs> Charlie's got a new book on MDMA called listening to ecstasy, which I'm very excited. It's coming out on election day, which is so crazy, but I love it. Um, yeah. but, but Charlie, you know, Charlie's point is like, what should we tell our patients uh, when they have a lot of anxiety about national events? Um, you know, what if our world really is coming apart? And I think it's really important that you know I do spend a lot of time normalizing my patient's symptoms right now when they are uh, feeling isolated and anxious, or when they're sort of despairing. You know, like we're we're poisoning the planet. You know, we're killing ourselves. We're it just um, I I do normalize it and I say like yes, all these things are true. It is terrible. Like it would be normal to be depressed. It would be normal to feel anxious about what's happening. I, you know, I don't want to pathologize normal human emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There are things that we're going through now that are very traumatizing. You know, Trump is a traumatizer. I mean, he is a traumatized person who has not fully worked through his issues and is really inflicting a lot of trauma on a a good uh, amount of the nation, I feel like. And so, uh, you know, I feel like my patients feel traumatized because they are being traumatized. They're really scared. You know, there is a level of sort of terror and fear um, for their safety or fear for what's going on and how divided we are. Um, Or maybe, you know, people are like, they're afraid of Antifa or they're afraid of, you know, white supremacists. Like there's a lot of fear and, you know, that's going to make you anxious. And also all this social isolation because of COVID really does sort of prime you for anxiety and depression. You know, the more connected we are and the more safe we feel, the less anxious and depressed we are. So right now we're disconnected and we feel unsafe.
1: I think it would be great to kind of underscore what you just said and kind of put some words to it. That is when you say to your patient, um, yes, it makes sense that you are freaked out. Yes, you know, Um, I understand, you know, and maybe even I feel the same way, Um, you know, what you're doing obviously is expressing empathy and and empathy actually does what, you know, your book is talking about. Empathy connects and, and that connection, that empathic connection we do in psychotherapy is what helps people develop their own capacities to connect with themselves. For to self-compassion. To, to, right, self, but also yeah. um, self-soothing, self-comforting. But we can also broaden that, I think, that it's not just what happens in the therapeutic relationship. We can bring all of these things we're talking about into family relationships and friend relationships and relationships with people on the street and relationships with people that we disagree with, right? This kind of empathic openness to who they are and what they have to say and to really try to listen and hear, um, so that we can all be kind of connected through our differences and connected in, in empathy.
4: And I said,, Charlie, something? you're
1: raising your hand. Would you like can to- you hear me?
4: Yes. Yes. Okay. Let me let me share something with you because I recently had a client uh, session where uh, he was expressing all this incredible anxiety, and um, and I was saying all these things to him. Uh, and uh, normalizing his, his anxiety, his depression, his alarm, um, his being freaked out. But the one thing that really touched him was when I emphasized uh, the, the need to be connected to the people in our lives at this time. Uh, and he said, oh, my God, you're right i 'm here out in the suburbs of of uh, out in the suburbs I, we don 't have friends who think our way uh, and uh, we 're kind of isolated here and i didn 't realize until this moment that how much that 's impacting me uh, because this anxiety thrives in the dark uh, in, in, in isolation this anxiety thrives. Uh, when we when we when we're cut off from people and then we can catastrophize and drive ourselves crazy yeah, you know you know
2: what the other thing i think <laughs> worth mentioning that i that i say to my patients a lot is like you are not alone everybody you know i'm talking to 10 patients today 10 of them feel the way you do. Like, yeah, you know, other people are anxious. I do think that misery loves company. I do think it is okay to kind of normalize it and to say, you know, this is not, you're not having an abnormal reaction to what's happening. You're having a perfectly normal reaction. What's happening is abnormal your reaction is normal. Um, yeah. You know, Derek, Derek Rosenfeld said that he heard me say this, like, if you're not traumatized, you're not paying attention, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, we're living in a very traumatizing times. And so I think it's okay to normalize, like, I'm not gonna just keep increasing my patients' benzos and antidepressants because they're, they're sad and upset about what's happening. You know, I don't think that that's the answer. I mean, it's, you know, I wish I could fix what's happening instead of just medicating my patients so they don't mind what's happening. You know, that's not, it, that's yeah. insane.
1: You know, there's another part, I uh, think, of what we're talking about, which I think, you know, you've alluded to. Um, and I have learned some of this from my one of my friend colleagues named Dr. Jack Saul. He's a psychologist who wrote a book called Collective Trauma, Collective Healing. Oh. Um, and he's done a lot of work in, you know, severe traumatized circumstances, such as, you know, the, the aftermath of 9-11, um, you know, the the war in uh, the former Yugoslavia, et cetera. And he's come up with, one of the ideas he's come up with, which I think is relevant to all of us today in this conversation, is that um, it's not just about doing individual work to work on our trauma and processing the trauma, but he suggests that we need to become involved with a collective, that collective action um, is what helps to kind of heal collective trauma. And collective action around creating a positive vision for the future as an antidote to kind of the negative vision that we're being confronted with. And so, once again, we're back to connection, um, at a, at a larger level, uh, with a, with a group.
2: You know, after the George Floyd murders and we all sort of took to the streets and were demonstrating and marching and chanting, um, I felt better. You know, I felt I felt better that at least we were all sort of coming out and agreeing, this is terrible, this is wrong, we have to do something. You mm-hmm. know, uh, it's a real setup for depression, this sort of learned helplessness and powerlessness, you know, that uh, you're being traumatized and, oh, what can I do, though? You know, what can one person do? And uh, it was sort of a collective healing for everybody to just, you know, start screaming about how wrong it was.
1: Mm-hmm. I wonder if there are others in the group that have a comment or a question. I'd love to hear from you.
2: Hmm. Um, so Dr. Powers is asking about, you know, this long history of psychedelics um, that they've been around throughout human history, but they still sort of have this place where uh, you have to prove that, you know, there's healing that can be done. and um, uh, I mean, I don't know exactly why, uh, well, one theory I have on, on why, uh, it is still sort of the, you know, bastard stepchild or whatever, um, is that people are really afraid of losing control. And it's a very basic fear that people don't want to lose control. And, you know, with the, with the psychedelics, there is often this ego dissolution, um, and it can be really terrifying. And I think that, you know, people who are, uh, a little bit uh maybe risk averse or not novelty seeking you know they like to play it safe, they get very scared by these things that they're they're they don't want to lose control over um and you know we talk we've talked a lot tonight about how psychedelics are good for like personal healing in the context of psychotherapy, but what we haven't talked about at all, which is really. Uh, to some degree, where these psychedelics came from, where the real history is, is their gr- their use in group settings, their use in ritualized way um, as a sacrament, um, as a church. So um, I definitely write about this in the in the community chapter of Good Chemistry because it's really interesting. Um, you know, there are several uh, sort of syncretic religions that are built around ayahuasca, um, and you know, there's the Unio de Vegetal, and my Brazilian Portuguese, pronunciation is terrible. And there is a Santo Daime, um, which translates to the Holy Give Me, which I love. Um, mm-hmm. But these are, these are two different sort of like churches um, that use ayahuasca, you know, as, as part of a ritual to bring the community together and to do sort of group healing. And, you know, it's also worth mentioning that uh, way back when traditionally, it was only the shaman who would alter themselves. The other people wouldn't. Um, but over time, you know, I think that now everybody drinks the ayahuasca, but, but in certain cultures, it was just the shaman who would drink the ayahuasca to heal somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, you know, we have these group rituals and these ayahuasca circles where everybody, everybody drinks. And, and the thing that I like about these, about ayahuasca circles is that um, the next morning people are processing what they learned and, and, you know, what they struggled with and, you know, they're sharing. And there's something about that group sharing um, that again is like great social cohesion and, you know, you can really uh, support or empathize with somebody who went through a, you know, a hard night or a bad trip, or they figured out something very, you know, shattering about their history. Um, I love that, you know, the group processing that happens.
1: You know, I'd like to acknowledge Dr. James Powers. He's uh, a Chinese medicine practitioner, uh, a meditation teacher, uh, among many other things. And um, he's also been someone who has uh, been a holistic health uh, practitioner at the Center for Optimal Living. So he's brought you know a wonderful kind of perspective into the work that we do. Um, and I also imagine that uh, in asking that question, James, you've got some thoughts about it. Uh, don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm wondering, you know, I mean, just one, one of the things that your question raised in my mind was um, that it's in Western cultures that these substances have not been accepted. It's not in traditional cultures, Western, capitalist, um, you know, advanced cultures, which are about separation, I think, from the planet and from one another and the means of productions, et cetera. But those are some thoughts that I've had. Um, I'm wondering if you wanted to add anything to this conversation.
3: Thanks, Andrew. Um, nothing in particular. I, I think that was just an interesting question to pose because uh, because the fact that psychedelics have been around for so long, and I'm just it's a curious, it's a curiosity for me, why it hasn't, for
1: example, seeped into the general culture in Mexico or some of the South American cultures, if it's been proven to be so helpful in terms of opening up psychologically or spiritually, why hasn't this sort of been sort of mm. accepted mm. broadly
3: in those societies so that's it's just a curiosity that that I thought maybe Dr. Holland could maybe address possibly
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um Andrew, do you have any thoughts on this while I collect my thoughts on this
1: well you know i've I've thought about something I think that may relate to this uh, and that is that in order for us to become civilized human beings, we actually need to disconnect from ourselves. And we need to con- disconnect from the, the all and everything. I mean, we have to create a separate ego. Uh, and we have to develop uh, capacities to function in society. So we restrict ourselves, we limit ourselves, you know, in the service of adaptation and uh, learning to be a functioning member of a society, right? Um, you know, I think uh, spiritual evolution and spiritual work is ultimately the work of uh, uh, disentangling or, you know, uh, undoing the work of socialization to develop a capacity uh, to let go of the ego, so to speak. And that's a kind of work that happens, I think, you know, over the cor- once one has really established oneself as a functioning member on the planet, you know, for survival. And so, you know, that taking oneself apart, um, you know, uh, is something that everyone isn't called to do. And I also think it is a very, it's an ultimately subversive activity because, um, you know, when, uh, psychedelics or, or spiritual practice ultimately enables us to see past the social construct, the socially constructed self or the social constructions that we have all come to believe in as you know accepted reality Uh, and we see beyond them um, we become potential uh, subversive uh, subversives in questioning as we said in this in the 60s and 70s authority Um, what gives them the power and not all of us you know what gives them the right to dictate and determine what is true Um, and so i think that that can be very frightening if you're not in a cultural context that supports that kind of development, that kind of liberation. Um, so those are some thoughts that I have about that. Curious if anyone in the group.
2: Uh, yeah, I would say a couple of quick things, but I'm definitely open to to what other people are saying. But you know, I remember um, the Pema children talking. She's a she's a Buddhist nun, and she was saying that there are certain cultures. Uh, you know, here here in the West, like here in the United States, um, people. There's a certain sort of subset of people who are very uh, self-involved and you know, sort of self-absorbed, and you know, trying to fix themselves. Um, and not every culture really has has that, you know. And again, I, I would remind people that the that the earliest indigenous use of these psychedelics was that the shaman would take the psychedelic, and the person who needed the healing, and it was almost always like physical healing, would just be present with the shaman while they took it. So Um, We don't necessarily have a lot of um, uh, sort of a framework for a lot of people taking psychedelics today, together, which is something I think that's happening now in our culture, um, in sort of in the underground community. But the other thing I think it's worth mentioning, and, and, uh, you know, people are talking about this quite a bit in the psychedelic community now is that, there's a particular demographic uh, that that you know the people who are using psychedelics for self exploration tend to be uh, you know in a different sort of socioeconomic demographic than a lot of other people. And you know one of the things that we are trying to focus on is how do we get these medicines that can help people process trauma? How do we get them into the hands of the people who have really been traumatized the most? Because that's not necessarily whose hands they're in right now.
1: Um, Speaking of hands, we've got two hands up. Um, I'm wondering if we can hear from Inez Mejia and then Derek Rosenfeld. Can we unmute?
3: Yes. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Great to see you. And And great to see
1: you.
0: To
3: meet uh, Julia. Uh, My English is not so good, so please forgive me. I I I've been wondering for a long time now after my psychedelic experiences what exactly means this uh, ego dissolution because i i haven't understand exactly what exa- what exactly that that means um when do you know that your ego has dissolved <laughs> you know my experiences have been very very deep and i think um i've been healing many many things and discovering many things but that Think that they got the solution that is always uh, around on these issues I, I haven't have the chance to understand mm. thank you mm-hmm. well I could say you know from the sort of biological
2: uh, understanding there's a certain circuitry in the brain that spends a lot of time going around in circles saying like how am I doing um, Am I I okay? Uh, How was I doing yesterday? How am I gonna do tomorrow? It's very like self-absorbed sort of circuitry in the brain, these pathways. And this is called the default mode network. And if your brain isn't doing anything better, it kind of goes in these patterns of like, you know me, myself and I, and how am I? And it's very, it's sort of narcissistic, right? And so when you, psychedelics quiet down this circuitry, they sort of disrupt the circuitry they let different parts of the brain communicate instead of the usual self-centered circuitry, all the different parts of the brain communicate instead of just that circuitry. And so the, the experience of the person may be this sort of feeling expansive. Maybe you feel like you don't know where you end and the rest of the world begins, or there's something called oceanic boundlessness, which is that you feel like you are a drop in an ocean, that there are no boundaries, that you have no boundaries. Um, Mm. And, and this uh, is sometimes very terrifying for people when they sort of lose their sense of self, and they feel like uh, their, their sense of self is sort of disintegrating some people uh, that may may cause somebody to have a a bad trip, you know, they don't like that sense of losing themselves. Other people find it really uh, that it's tremendous bliss. To to expand into something bigger and and to become more boundless. Um, It doesn't happen to everybody. It doesn't even if it's happened to you, it won't necessarily happen every time, even if you take the same amount, you know, the same milligrams or grams of dried mushrooms, Uh, you may have an ego disintegration sometimes and not other times. But it is, it's part of like a classical mystical experience that, you know, there is, there is a void and then there is the light. And when you're in the void part, it's like nothing exists and you don't exist. And then when you're in the light part, it's sort of like everything is exists and is connected and you are part of everything that's connected. So I'm very, I'm explaining it very sort of very binary black and white. Um, not everybody has a void and a, and a blissful melding with the universe every time they take psychedelics.
1: You know, we might also think about it in kind of psychological, uh, developmental, psychological, um, and experiential terms. I mean, Julie alluded to some of that. But that, you know, the self, the personality, the me, is, um, be, is a structure. We talk about psychic structure, so that personality is... Is a is structured, it's patterned. I think it's it's rooted in uh, networks in the brain. But we can think of the you know the sense of self as a structure. And you know, uh, psychoanalysis has different ideas about the structure of the personality. There are different theories. But for whatever reasons, it seems that psychedelics seem to have the ability to loosen the structure, so that in lower doses. You know the defensive structure that is the structures that keep parts of our awareness from parts of us that we are unaware of what we might think of as unconscious um, become uh, more accessible and so in lower doses people seem to have greater access to uh, their histories to trauma to suffering that has been kept out of awareness in higher doses it's like the structure dissolves and that's where there's this sense of ego dissolution, of the loss of separation between what's inside and what's outside. And if it seems to me um, you're doing this, you know, at a rave or at a party or with some friends, um, that can be a pretty terrifying thing. But if you're doing this in the context of a healing group, of a ceremonial community uh, with a shaman or with an elder or with a therapist um, who can create safety and kind of be there to support you through the terror what might feel terrifying of giving up this self structure um, there's then this oceanic experience of oneness and what's really fascinating to me is that a lot of the current psychedelic research which is showing um, you know significant improvements in depression and anxiety and clinical syndromes you know uh, intractable PTSD, the positive outcomes are highly correlated with a powerful mystical experience.
2: Right. And that sense of oneness. Right. uh,
1: Which is, you know, it's, it's, it's just an incredible, um, sort of empirical support for the mystical experience as being a healing experience, which, you know, traditional religion and spiritual spirituality has always, uh, known, um, Eric, uh, you had a comment or a question.
0: Yeah. Hey, Andrew. Andrew. Hey, how are you? I'm I'm doing well being here with you all. This has been a really, really great discussion. So I want to say thank you. Um, I, first, I want to just say I put a, a link. I, Andrew, it felt like you were reading straight from an op-ed I wrote when you were. I just want to amplify your uh, We Are All users" comment. It, it was very powerful. and um, So I just want to echo that. Which, uh, com- which yeah. In- how would you amplify that oh i mean literally everything you said is uh, if folks want to just take a link uh, a look at the link i put in i mean it really is whether you're a coffee user or a marijuana user or you know i one of the epiphanies i had when it came to that was you know growing up when you went to the pharmacy or whatever we called going to the drugstore, <laughs> and it's just such That's a normalized true. way in that sense and then you look at drugs that are made illegal for various reasons that had nothing to do with the drugs themselves but based in racism a hundred years ago. Meanwhile these drugs have been around for hundreds or thousands of years and just the the way we made distinctions between illegal and legal and you know what is bad and what is good and mm-hmm. you know we are truly all drug users. Um, yeah. uh, and Julie I want to say like you were talking before about the importance of being with your, your family or your network your support network during these tough times and you know, you I just want to say your Facebook videos with your family are such <laughs> such a bright spot in my because my family has been like a rock for me throughout this time and whether it's your family, whoever it is, you're, you're It's so important to be with your support network, but uh, and I'm a musician, too. So I just relate to that a lot. Anyways, I my question. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. My question is about, you know, you started touching on it right before, but I still want to talk about it. It's like the, the issue of access. Uh, You know, um, psychedelic assisted therapy can be so incredible, but as it becomes legal or normalized, I mean, it's going to be available to so few people. Right. And and, you know, like most people who overcome addictions, do so without like a formal treatment program, like self recovery. Right. You know, microdosing is growing in popularity, and you know, people are just becoming more aware of the the potential with using psychedelics. So. My question is about like, what would you say to people who are either experimenting with microdosing or just want to use psychedelics for, you know, self-growth and stuff like that?
2: Yeah. And also somebody asked about ketamine and I feel like I can address sort of all of these things. Like, um, you know, it's great that we have ketamine because it gives people uh, a chance to do something legally, right? And maybe even your insurance will pay for it. That you can have a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy experience uh, to treat your depression. You're not breaking any rules. This is FDA approved, um, and maybe your insurance will pay for it. So one of the things that I'm I'm focusing on um, is how do we get insurance to pay for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy? How do we get insurance to pay for psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy? Uh, and and that means like boring stuff like you know that you have to develop procedural codes, um, and that you need to have some sort of uh, you know, certifying body that agrees on, you know, who's going to do this work, um, and, and who, who will be sort of the clinicians and, but, um, it's all, we're all looking at sort of more access to more people, you know, we need, uh, certainly maps has been really trying to focus on recruiting therapists of color, um, for their studies, and then trying to recruit, um, research subjects who are people of color, um, or uh, indigenous, or gender fluid, or just anything sort of that's not like a white male, which is traditionally how medical research is done. You know, everybody needs to know that there are lots of studies that they don't even run women, they only run men, Um, and, and a lot of research uh, is done in like very particular demographics. And it's it's also the case with the the psychedelic research, the MDMA assisted psychotherapy research for PTSD and the psilocybin assisted psychotherapy research, um, that the you know we're missing a lot of sort of core segments of a population. So um, one of the things that we really need to look at is is how do we make it more accessible? And I think that one of the ways that we do it is is to get insurance to pay for it. Um, and then of course we have to get everybody to have insurance, which is a whole separate conversation. But you know, God forbid we should just have, speaking of oneness, can you imagine one company, one network? I just, sometimes I'll lie awake at night and just imagine that, you know, there's no such thing as in network of out of network and insurance because it like, it lulls me to sleep. Um, but these are, these are like lofty goals. Um, and also I just want to acknowledge that my husband and partner, Jeremy Wolf is, is uh, listening in and he, and he is, you know, my musical partner. Absolutely. We have a band called the rivals and we have been, we have been posting a song a day on Facebook since quarantine started. And it's, it was really about connecting, connecting as a family, you know, that our family was going to come together once a day and play some music and make a recording. And, you know, um, it was, it was a way to give us a little bit of structure and to give us a sort of a creative outlet and a, and a, a chore you know, that we could, that we could do together as a family. Um, so I appreciate you acknowledging
0: that, Derek. (laughs) I,
1: I want to make a, a pitch for, for another part of this, which is, you know, I believe that, um, we have many good ideas and we have many good practices, including, you know, harm reduction, substance use treatment, um, psychedelic assisted therapy, We might hear a little bit from Charlie about the book that he's just uh, published about his own love affair with MDMA and, um, you know, how he wants to bring, you know, bring his personal experience uh, as a model for encouraging other people to explore this very wonderful chemical. Um, But uh, something that's been really at the top of my mind is that um, there is such a, I mean, I think on the one hand, we're in the middle of a kind of sea change uh, in this culture in the last couple of years in which maybe it's the opioid overdose epidemic, it's the psychedelic research, uh, it's the breakdown of you know, our uh, faith in leaders that many, many people across this country are becoming uh, shaken out of old, rigid, you know, bad thinking and practices and open to new ideas. And so on the one hand, we're seeing, you know, lots of people interested in harm reduction, in progressive treatment, in compassionate care, in psychedelics. But I still think that we need to organize, we need, um, kind of movements, organized networks of people that can put political pressure to pressure the powers that be to support the implementation, the acceptance of, you know, healthcare to cover these treatments healthcare to, because they're all cost effective, you know, right. and, and actually some of the insurance companies are really getting on board. They're realizing that if you provide harm reduction treatment for people before they've completely destroyed their lives, you know, in the long run, it's cost saving for them, right? Uh, you know, many, many, many times over. And also with the, um, the movement, uh, to, uh, decarcerate people and deflect people from treatment. So, but we need um i think movements and we need organization and we need to come together to um you know to to move society along to embrace these things
4: yes i i certainly uh, would agree with you andrew and um i, I uh, uh i I'm, I'm happy to uh to uh underline the word you used before subversive um, because psychedelics are, in my opinion, inherently subversive. They just are. They they subvert the whole... Uh, um, in the 60s, we would trip and find the industri- military-industrial complex completely hysterical, completely absurd. And that was really seductive. And that's one reason I, they, they wanted to shut us down, because we were laughing at them. But th- these experiences are... are um uh, it, it's a democratization of uh, of, uh, of 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 growth and of sp- uh, of spiritual awakening you don't need a priest anymore to tell you to to connect you with God you can you can take a pill and uh and uh, if it's if it's pure in the right dose in the right set and setting and experience God it, it's it's the uh democratization of of it it, it it um anyone can can can, can do that can 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 do this if, if and that's why it's so important to get to, to have access to, uh, available to marginalized communities um, but uh, the the implications of uh, psychedelic use and the psychedelic renaissance are endless and um thrilling to me and the chief source of hope I have for the world right now mm-hmm. Thank you Charlie.
1: me too. So I think we're just about at the end of our um, of our uh, agreement here to spend this time together. Uh, Julie, do you have any final uh, words, uh, sentiments we want to share with the group?
2: Um, I guess, you know, only that I, I would really add some cannabis to this conversation, that I, I think cannabis is, is subversive, and I think it democratizes medicine. I think that when people can grow their own medicine and they can avoid, you know, you're talking about avoiding the priest and going directly to, to God. And I would say when you're growing cannabis, you, you know, you can avoid the pharmacist and the doctor and your insurance company. You're just growing your own medicine. You're um, it's very empowering. Um, mm. So these ideas that things are subversive or democratizing or empowering um, that means that they're exactly what we need right now.
1: mm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I wanna thank everyone for joining us for this first Optimal Living Dialogue. And um, w- uh, I wanna thank you, Julie, for um, joining me and sharing on you know, so many levels around so many important topics. And it's lovely to have this community to, uh, to be part of and to exchange with. So I look forward to seeing everyone at our next um, gathering.
2: Thank you for having me, Andrew. Thanks for inviting me. This was lovely. Everybody, stay well, please.
1: Yeah, be well, be healthy, stay safe, um, and uh, stay in touch. Stay connected.
2: Stay connected. That's what I meant to say.
1: Yeah. Stay connected.
0: For more information about the Center for Optimal Living, you can reach us at info@cfol.org at and check out our upcoming events at our website centerforoptimalliving.com. Thanks for listening.